0: Welcome to Order from Ashes. This is Thanasi Kambanis, and today I'm joined by Neda Antoun, an editor at Madamaser in Egypt, and Michael Wahid-Hanna, my colleague here at the Century Foundation. And we're together today to talk about the Egyptian revolution 10 years later. Neda, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Great to be on with you.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: I've talked separately with both of you over, over the last week, and I know I was surprised by how much I started to think about Egypt on the anniversary. I'm I'm sort of personally allergic to anniversaries as a trigger for for remembering and, and analyzing things. And yet when January 25th, 2021 uh dawned, I was surprised to find myself unable to really think about anything else other than what happened 10 years ago and 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 what to make of it. And I also found myself and I know this is something both of you shared in different ways. A little bit frustrated or dissatisfied with the ways in which uh, this event was being memorialized or remembered or 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 talked about in the public sphere. So I wanted to start by asking each of you to to share a little bit about um, your your experience of remembering the revolution, uh, and, and, and how you think about that whole, uh, that whole idea of, of 10 years later and, and remembrance and lessons learned and the framework in which, uh, we seem to be at least in the, in the policy and media world, uh, grappling with this event.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have no great frustration or allergy to anniversaries per se. It's been 10 years. Uh, it's, uh, nice round number, um, and it's been a long time. Um, a lot has happened since then, and um, it's worth thinking back on um, that moment at that time um, and what has gone wrong since. I mean, I, it's something I've done sort of ever since those days. Um, hasn't really stopped. Uh, but I guess I, I would start our conversation by just noting that it was a very big deal, uh, not just in Egypt and in the, in the region, but elsewhere, um, and that it was a moment of transformational opportunity. Uh, it was uh, a time of revolutionary potential unfulfilled uh, for a variety of reasons that I'm sure we are going to uh, discuss in the next uh, little while. Um, but I, I do. I, I I think it's important to think about what that opening represented, um, the kinds of potential it um, it unlocked, um, and of course, I think uh, there's no way of getting around the failures. I don't think those failures were inevitable. I think they were the product of um, obviously structural factors that predated the uprising that handicapped it in in many ways and made it a a difficult uh a difficult challenge you know the lack of institutions the lack of trust the lack of uh a deep civil society that could withstand the shocks um all of those things uh but it could have been steered in a different direction um it wasn't people made very poor choices um and uh you know, a lot of people are still suffering the consequences of that. And and there's no way to get around the failure, um, despite the recognition that it it, uh, it has had long lasting impacts, impacts that will continue to be felt within Egypt and beyond f- for many years to come.
2: Neda? Uh Yeah, I have to say, um, actually, some of the Decade remembrance sort of coverage, and um, I've been dipping into a few uh, webinars since. wasn't as frustrating as I might have uh, expected. Um, there are ways in which some of this can quite easily go into, um, like the idea of anniversary can go can lead us, I think, into forgetting antecedent and like you know, events and trends that led up to things and and perhaps encourage us to fetishize the event um, can sometimes lead us down a sort of a, a national sort of um, methodolo- methodological error. But I don't think that has happened as much as it might. Uh, it can lead us to say, did this fail or succeed, which can be a not very uh, useful question. But again, I didn't see that as much as I might have um, expected. I think some of the frustration around um, uh, anniversaries um i mean i think like michael said a decade is a little different so at, at meda um we, we spoke about this previously at an athlete, but um you know at meda it has been difficult at the anniversaries to produce uh throughout the years uh, to produce meaningful coverage um and i think that's what happens when you're engaging with um Actors who are involved, you know, um, and what tends to happen is people aren't able to to speak, uh, and there can be something a little bit uh, almost the the ugliest sides of journalism. You know, we're very committed. Um, you know, journalism is our our way of engaging and organizing in many ways at the moment. Um, but there can be something almost a little violent about remembering something that is actually being lived. Um, And its consequences being lived and struggled against and negotiated with uh, every day, uh, rather than something that's passed and being remembered.
0: Well, right, and the team—the team of people that that is is producing a lot of this coverage at Mada, and both the people who are active in and now and who have dipped others who have dipped in and out are also the people who are sometimes being detained or 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 you know negotiating crackdowns from the state and and are they they're not they're not simply historians sitting outside these events trying to make sense of them they are active participants who are who are uh living under still unclear rules about what's uh you know what's permitted and what's not permitted
2: yeah and I don't mean just uh, just meta or just journalists. I mean uh, across across the region, what does it mean to remember something which is not actually an event that finished?
0: i mean the the thing that struck me this the the most uh, as as this last week has unfolded uh, is a really vivid memory of how radical, embracing, and shocking that Revolutionary moment was and when it finally broke into uh, into public view and uh, you know sure I I I I understand the dangers of, of fetishizing the you know the, those who broke down the wall of fear and you know sort of making too much of uh, what this psychological and action breakthrough meant but I also remember that on january 25th and january 28th 2011 it was a a violent and felicitous shock to the system to see that many people thousands of people who weren't activists previously uh uh taking taking to the streets and and fighting the state and that that's the um that's the breakthrough that was transformational and began the 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 process of of revolution in egypt and i think with with time uh the the vividness and the importance of that has maybe in in some in some quarters has faded um w- without justification in other words that you know just because we don't know what has been and will be produced as a result of that breakthrough that breakthrough happened and its consequences are still working its way out. I mean, the historical, historical process is, has, has long, long and and difficult to parse tales. Uh, and, and I was really, uh, I was really moved, uh, to think about one, how, how huge and monumental that, that was at the time. And two, by how little I feel we still know today about what the long-term impact of that will be.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's no doubting um that 25th of january to use that as a shorthand was a rupture um i think that that's that's without a doubt i'm not sure um that i would agree it's been forgotten per se i think that for um participants it's it's quite painful to remember um in certain ways like i for one can't uh, watch or listen to certain chants um, there's a very visceral reaction, um, and in terms of knowledge production, you know, there there is a great interest in in protest um, across the region now. If you think about academia and so on, uh, both contemporary um, and and historical and sort of politics of of contention. Um, yeah, I'll just stop there and and let you go, Michael.
1: Well, on the point of knowledge production, I mean, this is something I've thought about a, a little bit um, in recent years, and and I I do think. Um, the circumstances that have chilled discussion have also limited our historical memory in in important ways, and and it's and it's something I hope that can be remedied. But there's no question that in in um, that the history, particularly of 2011 to 2013, despite this outsized focus, remains um, understudied. Uh, there are quite a few. Um, you know, maybe not critical, you know, history changing junctures, but there's a lot that went on in that period that has not been memorialized, that hasn't put, been put down on paper, um, you know, efforts, uh, large and small. Um, and I, and I do worry that some of that will simply be lost over time. Um, I think, you know, there are, have been efforts at archives, um, you know somewhat underfunded um and other uh, and other uh initiatives um but some of it is just individual memory um of those who participated throughout that period whether it be in terms of discussions in in parliament um to try to pass an ngo law discover uh, discussions to um to try to push forward uh something like a freedom of information act in egypt um Things that, you know, maybe didn't succeed at the time, but, you know, were Im- important, um, you know, at a kind of micro level or, or higher. Um, but but things that if we don't actually go about uh, recording, um, recording them um, will be forgotten. And I think that would be I think that would be a shame.
0: We'll be right back. I'm Tanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's International Affairs podcast, and I'm talking today with Nada Antoun and Michael Wahid Hanna about the Egyptian Revolution ten years later. Before the break, uh, you were both talking about knowledge production and what's what's been memorialized and 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 not from from the period of the revolution. I'm wondering if either of you has a sense uh, for. Uh, so we we we're, we're we're all three personally very well aware of what people who were participants in that event uh, uh, are are sort of thinking today or or processing today ten years later. But what does a fifteen or or twenty five year old Egyptian uh, who who was maybe too too young to be to be that engaged with with the the period of the uprising? What do they know and hear? Uh, today about that that event that's you know I, I I guess closer in their memory uh to what 9-11 is for for Americans say um and 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 what's the story that's been internalized in in the in the culture in Egypt? Nate, I don't know if you if you want to take that first if you have a if you have a sense.
2: Well I'll just take it first because there's something that was um Going around on social media the past um, couple of weeks um, that speak to this, um, it's a screenshot from a conversation where a young person asks in a group chat, so why do we have 25th uh, off as a national holiday? And actually, as we know, 25th of January has been a national holiday for some time and is a national police day. Um, and we didn't really talk about how mainstream remembrance in Egypt has been primarily about that. But um, but by the by, so someone... Uh, on the chat responds and says, um, um, basically it's become a little bit of a meme, but basically the person responds and says something big happened on the 25th, something like war. Hagazel war kidda was the phrase. Exactly. Something like war. And then the next message was, and I think Egypt won. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there's something astounding about this. You know, that it's an extremely recent memory to the extent that, as, as you were saying, I mean, participants are, are still grappling um. With it, and I think that is uh, speaks also to, also to some questions of, of uh, knowledge production in terms of there's still a, a big disorientation around what happened um, in 2013. So, so this seems very present for us and many people who were described as young. You know, let's not forget it was described as a youth revolution only 10 years ago, um, and then now there there are youth who who know very very little. Um, but I think to stop there would be misleading. Um, or wouldn't tell the whole the whole story. Um, and I think what has entered into, uh, so in terms of concepts about how people speak, you know, so I would walk to work and pass uh, schools on the way and I hear kids upset about something and they say, yalla nam saura, like, let's, let's do a revolution. Um, you know, even if they're only joking and even if they don't know that there was a revolution 10 years ago uh, or anything like this, I, I definitely think,
0: no one would have made that joke in 2010
2: no so i think there's deep impact even if there's little knowledge i mean i think that would be my my short answer um
1: so i'm going to i'm going to take it from a from a, another angle because i think how it's been internalized tells us a lot about you know not just official but so, uh, societal perceptions of what happened you know what took place uh, and in in those early days um, and for for months thereafter, you know, th- there were some competing currents. You know, one f- focusing on the kind of heroic act uh, of uh, of um, of the uprising, the commemoration of martyrs. Alongside that, of course, was an emerging narrative about conspiracies and about you know something like the what has now uh, coalesced uh, in, in terms of. Uh, foreign interventions and, and production of color revolutions, effectively. Uh, but the idea that this was a kind of foreign-backed um, conspiracy to undermine the Egyptian government. And in the immediate aftermath of, of particularly February 11th, um, the state uh, and many official organs reluctantly coalesced around this idea of martyrdom um, and tried to co-opt the uprising, um, tried to co-opt that moment. Um, And what's interesting now is to see how that's evolved over time. So um, we see a continuation of that, um, uh, trying to to instrumentalize the memory of the uprising uh, later in 2013 and the events that preceded the coup. Um, The idea that June 30th uh, represented a continuation of the revolutionary spirit of 2011 um, and then as uh, as uh, you know, following the coup uh, and the ascension of, of Sisi, um, we see a kind of progression um, away from co-optation um, to then uh, almost denunciation. So they're trying to do both of these things at the same time to say, okay, in, in early stages, that was fine. It was great, um, uh, uh, kind of glorious moment for Egypt. But we can never do that again. <laughs> um, and um, that kind of reluctant acquiescence now is almost uh, evolved into something like denunciation. And so, you know, when CC talks about 2011 now, it is um, in the cautionary. Uh, it is just something that Egypt could never do again because it was a near-death experience, um, and it's the thing that they want to avoid at all costs. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's a compressed... Uh, version of that history, but it's it's interesting to see what two thousand and eleven, particularly in official um understandings and and media um but how it now has become processed uh, and now it's simply you know the really bad thing that we want to avoid at all costs I
0: mean, one one thing that that seems different in the aftermath of of the establishment of this new and much more rigorously policed dictatorship. Uh, is that unlike in the decade before the revolution uh there is some kind of of thriving um semi-critical or critical storytelling and and coverage by Egyptians of Egypt uh, and I don't want to ex- exaggerate its importance or or somehow suggest it's it's going to be instrumental but from the sort of Muslim Brotherhood-funded uh, outlets that include a, a TV station to uh, uh, things like Mada, which has taken from some time now to publishing in Arabic as well as English, uh, to the the prolific writing that takes place on on social media by a whole host of characters. There is uh, a space that that didn't really exist uh, in the in the period you know from 2000 to 2010 uh where egyptians are are talking critically and covering critically their their own their own history and and political life now you know it's nothing like a a full uh uh free civic public square uh it's a, it's an embattled and and uh, marginal space that might be consumed by a few tens of thousands of people uh but that is a that's a record um and it's a and it's a conversation that involves uh, you know some group of people uh and I wonder uh you know one do you do you uh do you see this this group as a as a sort of like ongoing public square that carries on at least some of the, of the ideals of, of, uh, of the original uprising. And, um, and two, do you see that as being a, a, a sort of private conversation that's being held among veterans of the uprising, or is it a, a, a growing group of people that includes newcomers, uh, to, to the conversation, whether it's, you know, younger people or, or people who are outside of the original events?
1: I mean, I'm just to to skip my turn in line. Just I'll I'll um, I'll complicate that that version that description because I think it's a it is a uh, it is a more critical but smaller circle uh, in terms of uh, of those that are able to produce dissent uh, other than those in exile. Uh, but I think one of the features that this regime is currently hell-bent on avoiding one of the features of of the late era um uh, late mubarak era um, was the the kind of semi-free press that evolved um from 2000 to 2010 um it was seen as i think a safety valve for the regime um you know there so mainstream press was uh emerging um as a pseudo-critical voice in some areas, Um, as long as you avoided some red lines. I mean, Ibrahim Issa, obviously somebody who crossed those red lines, and so we saw what that was in practice. So, you know, the president's health, uh, Mubarak's family, the idea of succession. Um, If you stayed away from those, you could engage in various kinds of criticism in the mainstream press, Um, and I think that was important um, and I think it's it's part of the reason why this regime is so focused on controlling um, press and and not allowing those kinds of uh, organs to be sources of uh, of dissent and opposition. Um, and so you, I think you had a broader um, uh, a broader capacity to engage in some forms of of dissent um, in in comparison to a much more concentrated smaller circle. Of more rigorous and and um, serious opposition now, um, but it's a question I think of audience: how much, how many people is this reaching? Um, and I think that you know, there, it's not a straight comparison.
2: Yeah, I think Michael's absolutely right. Yeah. I think um, the press and the opening, the you know, relative opening up in the in the press in the last decade of Mubarak's regime um, is is a warning for the current regime. And at the time, uh, also the blogosphere was quite significant. You know, names who we now associate with the revolution as key sort of uh, thinkers around the revolution um, were very active in a a growing uh, blogosphere um, in the last decade as well. Um, To slightly go go back a little, I want to talk about an example that I think uh, speaks to the reverberations of 25th of January amongst. a younger gener- uh, generation. So, in in general, as many people have said, um, questions of, of gender are one area where we can see um, a lot of shifting in the, in the last ten years. Um, I will just say shifting. Um, we're not going to say that um, you know. Misogynistic patriarchal practices continue just as they as they did before, um, but gender has been like a key site of contestation. You know, the counter revolution. Um, I don't want to be too vague. So, for example, you know, there was this idea of, right at the beginning. If we think back of men and women sleeping together in the in tents in tahrir so they're degenerate, and uh, men with long hair, and 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 so on. Um, so its so agenda has been a, a key site of contestation. And while uh, 10 years ago, it, human rights activists might not have, uh, human rights lawyers might, don't mind me, um, might not have thought it was top of their agenda if there's a, a raid of a bathhouse and, and met several gay people or purported gay people arrested. Um, but that, that became quite central on the agenda. So we've seen in the last uh, year, especially, um, sort of online, um, cases and then legal cases off the back of them around uh, serial sexual harassers and uh, rapists, some of them you know, very much tied to, to the elite. Um, and some of the coverage this is described as you know, the Egypt's version of Me Too and so on, but actually what we saw before uh, Me Too were already many waves of this in the aftermath of the revolution. It's not to say also that it began after the revolution either, but it was very much opened up by the revolution and we had hashtags going viral and so on. In the past year, uh, in the case of the Fairmont case, which involved um, a, a gang rape in a hotel in 2014 and the uh, accused are um, you know, very wealthy, well-connected young men. Uh, what we saw was that the people who were extremely brave and extremely active online and really pushed this forward were, were really quite young. Uh, when a woman uh, outside, behind an anonymous account, um, you know, uh, revealed herself in the end for her own safety, uh, she was only 2021, 20, if I remember correctly. But when um, a case was formed and the National Council of Women suggested that witnesses come forward, witnesses came forward. And then when they were arrested from their homes, you had very different... Re- Reactions from people. Uh, people who remember the revolution and were a little older were obviously extremely panicked that witnesses were arrested from their homes at, uh, in the early hours of, of the morning. For some of the younger people who'd been leading this moment, that's not how they read it at all. And they were, you know, because threats had been coming from all directions, they were like, well, the state is just protecting these witnesses. They trusted the state. They trusted the state. And they didn't necessarily want to take on lawyers who were too politicized. They didn't want to talk to certain uh, sources, uh, outlets that seemed too politicized. And they trusted the state. Um, and I think that this is such an interesting moment because one could, I think, plausibly argue that this energy around uh, around all of this couldn't have, not couldn't have happened, but is very much tied to 25th of January. We can say that. Um, but because of this lack of memory and um, different experiences, the relationship to the state and the trust in the state, um, and one could talk about class as well, um, was completely different. And I think that this moment actually tells us a lot.
0: We'll be right back.
1: Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written, at least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy.
0: I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, and we're talking about the Egyptian revolution 10 years later. Uh, I've got Neda Antun and Michael Wahidhana on the line. Uh, Right before the break, Neda, that story uh, you told us uh, really segues into what I wanted to ask you both about during this last section, um, which is, sort how things are now, what kind of the 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 impunity of the state, the continuing failures of governance, the continuing violence that the that the state uh, in Egypt seems able to to deal out uh, without consequence. and what uh, the, what's part of what was chilling about the story you told is that uh, here i'm I'm hearing this story and it sounds like, it's going to be a story of of the egyptian police state protecting a member of the elite who uh has allegedly uh engaged in uh, taken part in a, in, a, in a gang rape and that's par for course of the way this uh the the regime and the elite have coexisted for such a long time uh and it is it is actually shocking to me to hear you describe you know young people involved in this as uh being willing to to to, to trust uh the state and and I guess I want to uh, to ask a little bit about how how bad are things now? Um, how good or bad of a job is is Cece's dictatorship doing of delivering uh, its governance bargain to the elite that that helped put it into power? Um, and um, you know, are we are we seeing a successful uh, uh, experiment in? authoritarian, uh, comeback by, by giving enough, you know, enough security or, or, or economic, uh, goodies, uh, to stay in power? Or are we seeing, um, as, as maybe I would hope, uh, proof that authoritarianism, uh, in addition to being wrong is also, uh, inevitably a bad, uh, a, a bad recipe for governance because authoritarians who don't listen to people also can't, can't do a good job. Well, so on the issue
1: of inevit- I don't, I, inevitability, I, I, I don't like the concept in, in any way. So, um, you know, uh, it is, uh, what is inevitable is that authoritarianism of this brand will produce bad governance. Okay, that, that I'll accept. There's no question. Um, they're poor at governance. Um, but I don't think that that necessarily, necessarily links um, to authoritarian sustainability. Um, I, I don't think those things are the same thing, right? So, you know, I think in 2011, 2012, we could say, you know, authoritarianism is self-defeating and, and, ha- and creates the seeds of its own destruction. Um, and I, I don't necessarily think that that's true. Um, so uh, there's no question that they're doing a, a very poor job in terms of human security, uh, development, and, you know, all sorts of social indicators. Uh, um, uh, but repression is a very powerful tool. Um, and you know, let us not forget that even at the height of, uh, of, of the uprising, Egypt was a very divided society. Um, the people who were in the streets throughout Egypt in 2011 and 2012, um, aren't a majority of the population, uh, you know, revolutions never happened that way, of course. Um, but we just look at the presidential election, and uh, in 2012, and you know that was a very close-fought a- affair, um, and could have gone a different direction. Um, it, you know, and it was uh, Mohammed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood and Ahmed Shafiq, who was a kind of avatar of the old regime. Um, and so, it's it's always good to remember that you know there is. Um, there is, uh, a conservatism in Egyptian society. There is a constituency for authoritarianism in Egyptian society, and maybe most important of all, fear and fatigue. Um, you know, political ruptures are dangerous, uh, you know, bottom up, uh, uprisings are, uh, are not the kind of best practice for effectuating uh, positive political change. Um, and um, a lot of people are acquiescent, um, not out of love for this regime, um, but out of fear and, and 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 fatigue and concern. Particularly when looking regionally, um, you know, people scoff at the you know the this kind of regime propaganda that says, you know, at least we're not uh, Syria, at least we're not Libya. Um, and sure, it's a crude propagandistic tool. But it's not um, ineffective. Uh, I think you know, for a lot of people, there there is concern about what would come next. And you know, I'll, I don't want to go on for too long, but you know, what would come next would you know? They're 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 right to fear that because of all that has transpired. Um, you know, all of the the accumulated grievance of uh, not just 2011 to 2013, but since. You know, but, but things like the Rabaa massacre are this you know this chasm this you know unaddressed uh tragedy um and you know it's it's hard to imagine how those things would be uh litigated now uh particularly if there was a rupture um so people um i think are understandably hesitant about um what would come next
2: yeah i mean i think that i agree with what you've with a lot of what you've said michael and i, I and i you're absolutely right about how a uh, divided Egyptian society is. And I think the question of Roba is, um, as you say, a tragedy and and really points to this. I mean, you have it for a section of the population. This is, you know, a massacre. Um, whereas in the broader collective memory, it's just not there. We don't even really actually have a shared memory about I don't even mean what the revolution is in a deep sense. I mean there are people you can talk to who refer to the revolution, and they think you're referring to 2013 when CC uh, came to power. Um, so I think there's there's no doubting that. But I think that when we, it's it's less a question I think of of will people um, align themselves to the revolution than do people will people do anything or is it as you say Michael that. Uh, the fatigue and the fear is really too great. And I I think you're absolutely right that this uh, narrative about um, chaos and what could happen to Egypt and Egypt's external uh, enemies and uh, the warning cases of Syria and Libya really is very effective, um, I think, in, in a collective sense. I think another thing, if we look back actually to the decade before the revolution, not only was there an opening up of press and so on, but actually um, people had much more options options and ways to express their grievances. So for example, there was local government. There essentially pretty much hasn't been local government since the revolution. You know, So it wasn't about were, were people willing to, to go on a march? No, but they would petition for uh, things related to their grievances and their and their quality of life, and I I do think that without that, and we don't have it that at the moment in any way, uh, it's simply not sustainable. I do think that. Well,
0: and, and you know, one of the one of the calculations of you know what brings a population to the breaking point is you know I, I sort of think of this as a sort of balance between uh, you know dignity and livability. So if you if you give a population enough uh, quality of life, or if you give them enough sort of rights and civic participation, uh, that might keep them satisfied. But if you strip them of both uh, for too long, there's some kind of rupture. And one thing I'm frankly not not clear on uh, from, you know, I've, I haven't spent Meaningful time in Egypt in, in some years now, uh, I don't have any sense of how bad things are for uh, for most Egyptians, and this and this was you know this was the precursor to 2011 was that so many people felt so. Uh, uh uh sort of pressured in multiple ways and that was you know that was in retrospect the the a a factor that drove enough people to a breaking point uh the authoritarian bargain as framed by cece and his propaganda is um is that sort of in exchange for Giving, taking on this sort of Pharaoh's sets of powers, he is going to deliver a level of security and prosperity to Egypt that it had been uh, denied. And you know, my sense is that that's not happening. But I actually, I don't know. Um, so I'm, I don't know if if, if either of, of you uh, can can sort of judge whether that project is, is failing and is it buttressed purely by the by the fear and the propaganda or is there actually a, a scaffolding uh, to what this regime is, is is delivering?
1: Well and to go back to this issue of sustainability, I mean what I would say is I'm after all these years uh, of frankly a lot of unexpected events in, in many ways, um, it's not as if I was expecting revolution and uprising in in January 2011 uh, the, the 2011, um, I mean, what I would say is that I, you know, I'm, I think it's a fool's game to, to try to predict, um, revolution. Um, there's a lot we just don't understand in terms of, um, that kind of collective action across the society. Um, and you know, to link that to the question of sustainability, um, I I think a lot of terrible subpar, Situations uh, where there are flashing red signs of, uh, you know, uh, in terms of risk factors, somehow sustain themselves for a very long time. You know, I, I don't think it is a neat formula that says the CC regime came into power with this authoritarian bargain. They're not fulfilling their end of the bargain. Human misery uh, is increasing on, on one end, frustration is increasing on another. Uh, and hence, if this continues for too much longer it will reach a breaking point and there'll be another political uh, rub.
0: I'm asking a simpler question which is 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 human misery increasing with you know sort of no no prejudice to whether it will prompt a revolution again.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I think for a variety of reasons yes it has. Um, and um, and but my but I but I don't think that, that I mean that's important and you know it's important in terms of just human terms, you know what is happening in terms of increases in, in poverty in Egypt say of course these are really central um, issues not just for uh, for the Egyptian government but for people who are in, interested in the future of the country um, but I just I it is I come back to this question of sustainability a lot um, because um, you know again we talked about this early uh, on in this discussion but but in terms of governance sure they're they're failing on all sorts of uh, metrics um, but I, I'm I'm hesitant to think that that what that means in terms of politics. I think we don't know, um, and you know I think because of uh, of their coercive power, um, you, you know the the greatest risk factor remains internal to the regime. Um, but again, I, I'm not in the game of prediction because I you know I, I I realize I just I don't think we have the capacity to do that, and if mass protests broke out, uh, despite my thinking that, that we're not on the cusp of that, you know, okay. I mean, I, w- I would, be somewhat surprised, but, um, I think what we've seen in recent years is that, um, you know, we don't have a firm grasp on, on these underlying dynamics that produce these kinds of, um, ruptures.
0: Neda, uh, as we, as we end this, uh, this conversation for now, but certainly not for, for forever, uh, any sort of closing thoughts on uh how Egypt is now and and you know what what that means to the the legacy of of the uprising
2: I think Mike obviously absolutely right that mass uprisings can never be uh, predicted and we should be very wary of 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 people who 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 argue that um that you need certain factors or we can explain why uh, January 25th and the other uprisings happened when they did. There's always an element that is unexplainable and it's not necessarily related, as we know, to extent of repression or extent to misery. Um, Misery, broadly defined, I I think clearly has uh, increased in the last decade in Egypt on on multiple counts. Uh, And, you know, we shouldn't forget that the demands of the revolution did cover not only sort of authoritarian power, but questions of, of... how livable is life, uh, you know, bread, freedom, social justice. Um, but often the more miserable, if we're going to use that word, or how much people uh, struggle increases, people find modes to survive. It doesn't necessarily push towards resistance. Um, and I think uh, in different ways, um, Egyptians are, are struggling to, to survive. Um and I think don't necessarily have a clear narrative of what change would, would, would look like. Um, and yeah, I don't think we can predict when or how uh, otherwise would happen at this point in time.
0: I mean, the the last thought I'll close with is that 2011 was was a period where, for the first time in a generation, history in the Arab world started to move at a, at a breakneck speed. Uh, and if we think about the last century or, or century plus, there have been periods, I mean, like in the, the post-colonial period or the you know the early decade of of Nasser's power where things happened all the time all over the all over the Arab world where there were you know the the revolutions and topplings of governments and real changes in the social arrangements in in uh in different countries. And in the post-Cold War period things have turned quite slowly even with uh interjections like the u.s invasion of iraq or the various developments that took place post oslo in israel palestine overall uh change political change social change economic change has moved quite slowly during the last uh uh, 30 years with the exception of the period of the uprisings Uh, and if and when we we encounter our next period of breakneck transformation as both of you noted uh, uh, no, no one will have been able to predict it. Uh, and, uh, and it will take us all by surprise in the sense that we get used to, uh, observing these modes of trying to survive. Uh, and then when suddenly things are, you know, it's an open, uh, an open period where anything or many things seem possible. Uh, it, it, it jolts, uh, it jolts many of us as I think 2011 did certainly for me. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and we've been talking uh, with Neira Antun and Michael Wahid Hanna, uh about Egypt's revolution 10 years later. Thank you both for coming on the podcast.
2: Thanks. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Till next time.